Well, if you got your Bibles, we are going to be diving in today, starting out in 1 Thessalonians. So if you got them, open them up to, thank you, John. Open them up to 1 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to get cranking away. Now, let me, let me explain some things to you as we, as we get ready to get going. Part of the thing about 1 Thessalonians, and the reason that I chose it, is I think it's one of those books that is like, I think going to be super um, pertinent to who we are. Now, let me, let me see if I can explain this just a little bit and kind of get us, get, us, get us moving in a direction. One of the things about 1 Thessalonians that I think you're going to find, and this is who Paul is writing to, you can see this in chapter 1, verse 1, is that he's writing to this group of people that if you, if you can just imagine for a second your mind Greece and where Greece is, and it's just a little bit above Greece. They were a group of people that in a lot of ways were a lot like who we are. They were, they were people that came from a, a, an area of about 100,000 people, which is about what Simi Valley is. They actually lived down in a kind of somewhat of a valley. They, they were close to the ocean. They were right next to it. We're pretty close to it. But one of the things about it that is so cool is that it was a, it was a true like area in which they were, it, was, it was imperative to the rest of what was going on. Like one of the things I always talk about with Simi Valley is it is the place where you're going to find probably a high percentage of cops and firemen and people that work in the industry and, and people that just engage to help keep places like LA moving forward in a lot of ways. This was Thessalonica when you think about the entire kind of Roman Empire. They were crucial to what was going on. They were a group of people that, that were a part of this, this long route that went from all the way from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. So in other words, they were, they were a group of people that the Roman Empire flowed through. They were a group of people that Greek was their orientation. They weren't like an educational kind of epicenter. They weren't a philosophical epicenter like Athens was. In fact, what's so cool about it, and this is what I think I love most about Simi Valley, they were pretty blue collar. They were guilds. They were, they were people working day in and day out in their jobs and going through what needed to happen. But I think also one of the reasons that I want to teach this letter is not just because I think we'll relate to it, but I think the other part of this letter is that historians tell us is, is that it was a pretty hopeless time within the Roman Empire. It was hopeless from the standpoint that a guy named Caligula had just died. He had been a, a, a leader who was kind of flamboyant and, and crazy. And if you could think about it, it's almost like a, a Trump. You know, he was just full of energy, bombastic out there. And then all of a sudden we get a dude named Claudius. And Claudius is a lot like Joe Biden, kind of a, a little bit, you know, older. He wasn't old, but struggles talking, struggles doing different things. Uh, but in a lot of ways, you know, he was, he was a sufficient leader, but people were just freaking out on what to do. They were worried about things like this. They were worried about crime. Crime was going through the roof. In fact, crime was so bad within this particular area that they started building homes without windows so that people couldn't get in and rob them. The murder rate was starting to soar. Even like in a somewhat comparable way with us when we look at something like abortion and fanticide where they were taking infants and setting them outside the city gates, that was beginning to grow at pretty, a pretty great rate. Prostitution was highly organized. It was rampant in a lot of ways. You see, when they do, they do digs on that particular city, they find pornographic images all over the place. The outside of the homes in different ways had statues that were just absolutely inappropriate. Now, a little bit different than Simi Valley, maybe it, it also had a large slave population, but in a lot of ways, these people were just wondering, 
what are we going to do? There was an unsurety to it, of what's going to happen next. Now, little did they know on the back end of this, if anybody knows anything about history, the next leader is Nero. So things didn't exactly get a whole lot better. But here comes Paul into this particular city. And as he walked into it, we find out it was a city in which I think in a lot of ways it was dying for the gospel. Let me just say this, and I'm talking to all of you that are older. I'm talking to those that are middle school and high school here today. I think just like that particular city and just like that time within the Roman Empire, I think where we live right now in Southern California is a place that is ripe and it's ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be landed. Now, when he walked in, he didn't walk into, you know, we don't have like temples to statues. They had, they had different gods like Dionysus, who is the god of the harvest. He was, Bacchus is another way you might hear his name. He was the god of wine, fertility. He was the god of just going crazy for all that you can imagine. Another guy named Seraphis was a Greek or Greco-Egyptian god, was kind of the god of the underworld. Eventually, he was the god of healing and fertility. But in an interesting way, here's where I think it does connect it was a very pluralistic society. It was kind of just believe a lot of different things. And so here you have this group of people that are in this kind of metro area, keeping the Roman Empire flowing, doing a lot of things that need to happen. But I think in a lot of ways they were hopeless. And even when I look around, even within a place like Simi Valley, I look at it and I see people and everybody's nervous. Either they're thinking that they're going to move away from a place like Simi Valley or they're just wondering how in the world are we going to survive in this kind of a place. And let me tell you something. This is what's so great about the book of 1 Thessalonians is Paul is going to take and he's going to speak hope into this world. Now, you would think it was hopeless on one end, but, but check this out. Look down in, 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 in Acts 17. If you, if you don't have a Bible, you can look up here, but you've got your Bible. Let me kind of show you how Paul came into this town and, and what was going on so that you can kind of catch that Paul, it didn't matter what. It didn't matter the circumstance of the situation, man. Anytime he was coming into a place, he believed so much in the gospel story that he was going to come in and he was going to engage the culture in which he lived. Now, in 17 verse 1, it says this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. Now, one of the things you have to understand about Acts is, is it's kind of a letter in which it's, they're giving the highlights of what's going on. Paul probably wasn't only there for like two or three weeks. He was probably there for a while because what we learn in verse two is that he got to actually, on the Sabbath, he got to go in and reason with the Jews from the scriptures. He got to hold the scriptures and engage the people, which you didn't just get to do that overnight. He had lived there. He was probably a leather worker that did tents. And in a lot of ways, Jews didn't like leather workers because they were, living with, they were working with dead things. The, the Greeks in that particular culture looked down on people that worked their hands. But Paul didn't care. You're going to learn this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He just wanted people to understand the greatest message ever. He wanted them to understand the gospel. And finally, he gets his chance in, in dealing with all of these different people around Thessalonica. And as he comes in, it says in verse 2, he, or verse two that he began to reason with them from the scriptures. Look at verse 3. And look what he began to explain to them. 
He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. In other words, he's opening up the scriptures going, this dude is real. It is a for real reality. You need to believe in this King Jesus. Now in verse four, I love this. Some of them persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks that would have been people that were proselytes, people that didn't believe, weren't believing Jews, but they, they came to believe that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, was true, but they began to believe in Jesus. And not only that, but it says a few leading women. Meaning that many of the early people that were part of this church that ended up believing, they weren't necessarily the Jewish people They were these devout Greeks, these ones that were starting to learn who King Jesus truly was. And it wasn't just men, but it was leading women, meaning women that had money. They were were ones that had houses and had position within the culture. In other words, here comes Paul into this hopeless culture, wondering how in the world anything is going to work. And he lands the gospel and people believe. On some levels, right, you would have just quit and been like, woo! Right, we would have been so excited. That is until we come to verse five. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, meaning they went down in where people were looking for work. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked this house of Jason, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So it went from now, all of a sudden, Paul landing the gospel into the synagogue, these people coming to know Jesus Christ, probably Paul and Silas and and Timothy, they're slapping hands as everything is going on. And in the midst of all of it, though, these, these particular Jewish people that were part of this synagogue that didn't want Paul teaching about the true Messiah, they raised a huge ruckus. And now all of a sudden, they're looking at each other going, whoa, what are we gonna do? Because they're at the doorstep of this guy named Jason. Now, we don't know a lot about Jason. He was, a, he was a, it's a Greek name. He probably was one of these early believers and, that came alongside of Paul that had a lot of money. He's a guy, though, that sacrificed greatly to advance the gospel. And in fact, after reading Acts 17, this is why I named my youngest son Jason. I wanted him to be a young man that also was a Jason that lived in such a way that at all costs, he was ready to advance the gospel. Now, what did they say was going wrong? Look at verse six. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. They have come also. And Jason Jason had received them and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, what's the big deal on that? Well, here's the other thing that I think is so important about for us to understand what, what is going on in Thessalonica that I think becomes huge for us. This particular city was within Rome. I would say it this way. These were the people that were most robust for Rome. They were the ones that believed wholeheartedly in Rome. In fact, they had rearranged their culture to be this city that proclaimed the greatness of Rome. They loved it. They were these ones that we might look at within our culture and that we might say, man, these are the the people that truly love their country. They loved it so greatly. Here's what's crazy about it is, is that they begin 
to, to take what was the Caesar early on, this guy named Julius Caesar, you probably heard of him, and they made him not just the ruler of all of Rome, but they wanted to laud him so greatly that they made him actually a god. His then person that came after him, Augustus, they made him what, the, what it's called the son of God. And they worshiped these two men as God and the son of God. And they built a temple. And there's actually a statue that they found of Augustus Caesar with his hand raised high that they would go to and they would worship him. They not only worshiped him, but they began to worship this goddess named Roma. Roma was this, this goddess that represented all that was great about Rome and all the benefaction, the, the great people of Rome, the, pe the people that had money. And because they worshiped Caesar and they worshiped Roma and they worshiped the great people of the city of Rome, they were these ones who were, 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 were always lauding up the greatness of Rome. Rome allowed them to be a free city. Now, being a free city, here's what you got to understand. This gave them all kinds of wonderful realities. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to have old soldiers come in and take over their property like in places like Corinth or different cities like that. They had less taxes to pay than other people. But listen to me. Here's the thing we're going to find. Freedom that doesn't come from God is always costly. We talk a lot in our country about freedom and liberty, but let me tell you this, freedom and liberty that does not come from God always is costly. Meaning they had to worship this particular government that was around them. Now here's what I would say to this. I love the country that I live in, so don't, don't mistake what I'm about ready to say or take it in any kind of a wrong way. I love every aspect of it. I think our form of government is wonderful. I, I, I love it. But listen to me. Any time that you begin to laud and worship the country that you're in more than the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you have missed the point. And I would say this. I would say those of us within Simi Valley sitting in the shadow of the Ronald Reagan Library, I mean... I found out quickly that when you come to Simi Valley, you have to ask Ronald Reagan into your heart. <laughs> I love the country I'm in. It is not the kingdom. I don't care who you are or as patriotic as you might be, but this form, and this is what I want everybody to understand, we are the best citizens of this nation because we are followers of Jesus Christ. We will always be the ones that do the best to cause our culture and our society to flourish. We will stand up against any forms of injustice that are out there. But this is not our kingdom. Paul was coming in, and this is why they were so angry at him. That he was preaching, not that Caesar is Lord. It's this Greek word kurios. He was preaching that only Jesus Christ is the true Lord. And let me tell you something. Everybody in there, in that particular culture, they knew you don't play with that. No, Caesar is Lord. You need to be patriotic to the great king. You need to be patriotic to our great nation or our great empire of Rome. But Paul came in saying, uh-uh. The great kingdom is the kingdom to come. The great kingdom is found in somebody that you're gonna be talking about here in just a little bit. But when he landed that message into there, what was so great, when you look down in verse eight, 
is though the people and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, when they had taken the money as security from Jason. In other words, Jason said, look, let me, let me kind of almost like in some ways, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one that'll vouch for these guys. They let them go and watch this. The brothers sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. In other words, rinse and repeat. <laughs> if you ever wondered whether or not Jesus, or whether or not Paul believed in Jesus, read the book of Acts. He said, fine, you'll kick me out of here. I'll go to the next place. Now I say all those things, just again, hear me out. I love this nation. I want to be the best possible citizen within this nation. I want Cornerstone to be wonderful within how we act and operate as part of this particular world that we live in. But we need to get into our minds oftentimes. We talk more about this kingdom than we do the next kingdom, and that is not Christianity. Christianity always keeps the right kingdom at the forefront, and specifically, we're gonna learn, always keeps the right king at the forefront, which is something I can't wait to talk about. Now, not only that, is it like us, but look at chapter two. Go back to 1 Thessalonians and look at verse 17. Paul left, but let me tell you something. He loved these people. He said, since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Chapter three, verse one. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brothers and God's co-worker, to the gospel of Christ, meaning they were only looking for Paul and Silas, so Paul said, okay, they're looking for me and Silas. Timothy, you go back to make sure that they're doing okay. Verse three, he wanted to make sure that no one had been moved by these afflictions. They also were experiencing a difficult time, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. He said, I, I told you that this is how it's gonna be if you choose to follow Jesus. Verse five, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and your labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long, as, long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. In other words, Paul said, I couldn't get you guys out of my mind even though I had to leave. And here's the greatest news in the world. Whenever the gospel lands into people's lives, you cannot stop them. They stayed start steadfast and strong and secure. In fact, by the time he gets to chapter four, verse one, he, he has to, the worst thing he can actually say about them is just that now that they would, what they're doing, look at the very end of chapter four, verse one, I just want you to keep doing more and more. But Paul loved them. Here's one of the things I want you to understand about this letter. And I want you to understand about it from this standpoint. John was up here, Pat was up here, all the guys that were watching on, online the one thing that I love about the leaders of Cornerstone is that when we sit around and we pray and as we sit around and talk, we love you. See, there's something that happens between the leaders and those that are part of a congregation. What, what Paul puts it in chapter two, verse 19 through 20, he says, what's our joy, our hope, our crown of boasting before our Lord at Jesus' coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I love this church. 
One of the coolest things in the world for me, I think, is I've, as I've pastored, and I've done this now here at Cornerstone for about 10 years, it's my first job as far as being a, a lead pastor, is that most guys only last about three years within a local church. Not only that, but right now, the dropout rate of pastors that within churches in the United States is, I think, close to almost 33%, almost a third. Why? Well, I think in some ways it just gets hard, but people always ask me, especially when I go back home to Montana or Wyoming, they're like, you know, why do you stay out in California? What is it, know. Why? I love this church. I love that we're on the forefront. I love that if any church in the United States, we get to live on the edge of Los Angeles, California, which is right next to Disneyland, the gateway to Hades. <laughs> Do you get how cool that is? Sure, we could go live a lot of other places, and I just came from Montana. You don't want to go there. It's cold. <laughs> Miserable, snowy. I went through Idaho. All they have is a bunch of potatoes. <laughs> went through Utah. That might be a place to go now. That might be a place to go. Arizona, they just have cactus. Nevada might be a place to go. Do you guys get it? We're on the forefront. We're on the forefront of what it is that's going on in our world. We're not running to the back row kind of as the defense. We are sitting out here in a place like Southern California where I think the gospel is just as desperately needed, by the way, as in Wyoming or Montana or Idaho. I'm just joking about that. But Paul was writing to them saying, as difficult as it is, the gospel is greater. See, I want Cornerstone to believe this. We have the greatest message of all time. We have the good news that our King Jesus came as fully God and enveloped himself in flesh, fully man, fully God, lived a perfect life. He did proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He died, he was buried, but let me tell you something. Our king did not stay in the grave. He rose again, he established the church, he sent the people off, he went to be with the Father, the Holy Spirit landed on the church, and for 2,000 years, we've been a part of something that is the unstoppable force that Jesus said in the book of Matthew, even the gates of hell can't stop it. We are the church with the greatest message ever, with the great king that Paul proclaimed in Thessalonians. And I think more than anything, what Simi Valley needs is new proclamation of our great king. We're here. Isn't that awesome? Now, some of you are like, oh, I don't know. I still like Idaho. No, you don't. They have gone. Seriously, it's just a bunch of potatoes. You don't want to go there. We have the greatest message ever, and we serve the king. Now, what's so cool about that is that then Paul says in verse two, I just give thanks to God always for you. Man, this week, and a lot of you have had COVID, what do you do? I mean, I sat around in my room and after I had watched, you know, whatever TV show I thought I needed to watch that I found out was actually stupid, I, you know, oh, I just sat around and this text just came, just came to my mind. 
Like, I can't believe I get to be the shepherd here. I think this is what Paul's saying. I can't believe that I got to be a part of you and I got to see what God was doing within your life. I got to, I got to watch. And so I constantly says, mention you. He said, in our prayers, they were, we were praying together. We were so excited about you particular people. But not only that, verse three, in remembering you before our God and Father and your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I want to finish because I want you to see this. In the book of Thessalonians, you are going to see, we're going to have a lot in common with them as we kind of walk through some different aspects of it. We're, we're a group of people that live in a hopeless culture that have a message of hope that our world needs to hear. We're part of, of a group of people that all of us in here in some way, the gospel impacted us and we came to life and all of us are still here worshiping King Jesus and it's hard and it's difficult just like it was in Thessalonica. But in this particular verse, I think is everything that we need to understand about the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is what I'm so excited for us to go through in here. Now here's what I want you to do. Look down at verse three and I want you to see three particular words that are so crucial here. Does everybody see in there that word work? The word labor, steadfastness, everybody see it? If you don't, it's in yellow. If you're colorblind, I'm sorry. Everybody got it? Now here's what Paul said. He says, when I look at all of you and the reason that I thanks and it's say thanks and the reason that I remember you in this particular moment is I know what took place. You're a church that's not afraid to work. You're a church that's not afraid to labor and you're a church that is steadfast. That word work means kind of action versus idleness. It's not, just, it's not just this idea of useless busyness. I look around this room and one of the things that I always tell people about Cornerstone is I'm a part of a church that's not afraid to work hard. I love that. We're not afraid to roll our sleeves up. We're not afraid to go after it. And Paul says, I saw this in Thessalonica. You're a group of people. You're not afraid to work hard. He says, you're not afraid to labor. You're a group of people that have been weary to the point of exhaustion. You've, you've suffered with the expectation, though, of something bigger, which you're gonna see a lot through the book of First Thessalonians. You're suffering, but you believe that there's reward at the end of this. And then he says in there, you're steadfast. You remain under. Here's the other part about it. They don't quit. Now, here's what I want you to keep in your mind. When the gospel landed in this church, there was action. They weren't just sitting around doing nothing. There was action in this church. Action that could be seen, action that was evidenced. In fact, Paul is writing to them and they're probably in a lull between difficulty. By the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, about a year later, they're gonna be even more kind of downtrodden and beat down. But he's looking at them and saying, I see it in you. I see the fruit and the evidence of salvation all over your church, and I see it in these particular three words. Here's the actions. But let me show you something that's more important. See those three words in there next? Faith, love, and hope. Now, those three words are crucial. Any, all the way through the New Testament, you're gonna see generally it's gonna be faith, hope, and love. That's the way you're generally gonna see it. But in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul takes love and hope and he flips them around because he's wanting to put hope at the very end to make sure that they understood hope is the driving force of everything that I'm gonna talk about right now. And we're gonna define hope here in just a little bit. 
But in connecting them to them, and this is just something for those of you that are grammarians that are losers like me and geeks. It says in their work of faith, labor of love, hope, or steadfastness of hope. Those are what are called subjective genitives, which actually means it is faith which motivates or produces work. Love that motivates or produces labor. Hope that motivates or produces steadfastness. In other words, it is faith. It is that trust and allegiance to Jesus, this king, this one who is over all things. It is believing in him and him alone. It is the love that we've seen from God. He didn't, we didn't love first. He loved us first. And we've seen his great love on display all throughout the New Testament through the person of Jesus. And from that love, we labor. And from hope, just that certain expectation of God's faithfulness, we're steadfast. In other words, and this is the way I would put it, every last aspect of those particular things are gifts and traits. They're things God gives to us. Faith is not something that we can muster in ourselves. In Ephesians 2, he talks about this in verse 8. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, faith, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. Where do we get faith from? God. Love, we didn't love first, John 4, but instead, God loved us and therefore we loved. It is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It is a gift from God. And even hope is something that we can't conjure in ourselves. The only reason we have hope is because God gives us reason to hope because he is always faithful. In other words, what's so great about this is every last aspect of what God has given to us as followers of Jesus Christ is to stir us to be the people that God intends us to be. Now listen to me. You can't conjure up labor and work and steadfastness you have to understand faith, love, and hope. When Paul would come in and preach, he would help them to understand their faith. He would understand the great love of God that is poured out of their lives that we're intended to display to the world. And then he would speak of the faithfulness of God so that this group of people could have hope. What 1 Thessalonians is gonna do is not focus on how hard we're supposed to work. In fact, at the end of this letter, I believe we are going to be a group of people that are gonna work harder. We are gonna labor more. We are gonna be steadfast. Not because we focus on that, but instead because we're gonna focus on faith, love, and hope. Even as a parent, one of the things I've been wrestling through in my kids' lives is oftentimes I'm trying to get my kids to do things. Paul was so brilliant he did call them to things, but first he would always come in and prod them with faith and prod them with love and prod them with hope. He would show them something greater. But this hope isn't just in anything, and here's where I want to bring it to a close. This hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul came in and preached, he made sure they understand something. He didn't just attach them to working hard, to laboring hard, to being steadfast. He didn't just preach this concept of faith, love, and hope. Man, what he did was he took King Jesus and he put it in front of him in front of the people. His point is you've encountered the king. See, the reason that you do all these things is not because you're so good, because those actions come from this gift of God, and this gift of God is found only in the person of Jesus. And when you encountered that King, Jesus Christ, your life would never be the same again. And I think all of you sitting out there that know King Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. 
When you first started to get who the king was, didn't your life just begin to radically change? You begin to see the world differently. You begin to operate differently. You begin to see people differently. See, what has to happen, Paul's saying, is for us to be the people that God intends us to be is we need to have a huge dose, a huge exposure of King Jesus, meaning that the thing that we need more than all else is who not only King Jesus is, but let me show you one last thing that's connected to this. Now, in verse three, if you look down, you see that word before our God and Father? In some ways, oops, before our God and Father, In some ways, what people do is they'll say, well, he's remembering them before God and the Father, which is true biblically. But actually that word, the better feel of the letter and the better place it is in the sense and it kind of completes this idea of hope is that it's steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Well, what does that mean? There's two sides of it. Let me just finish this way. One side of it is right now, understand, when Jesus Christ died, he went and ascended to the Father. When he ascended to the Father right now, our king is working all things out. He is accomplishing the task of his church moving throughout the world. He's right now before the Father interceding for the saints. He is right now orchestrating and moving, controlling as he works at Revelation 2 and 3, walking amongst his church to be who, he's, who the church intends, intends the church to be. But in a bigger way, this idea of before the God the Father points us to the very end of the story. See, in Genesis 3.15, we hear of this snake crusher that's going to come and destroy all things. In Psalm 2, we learn of a king that is coming that's going to write all of humanity. All throughout the Bible, and even King Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said, I came to set all things straight, to write all things. And let me tell you something. There is coming a day when King Jesus is going to return, and this is a huge part of 1 Thessalonians. He is going to return And Jesus is going to make all things right. In Philippians 2, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It does not matter which king or kingdom or which person, which man or woman, which child or adult, what it doesn't matter, the color of who we are, it doesn't matter anything. Our king is coming back to establish all things And Paul's point is, is that's where you place your hope. Now, let me give you this definition. We're going to be using this all throughout. Hope is the confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness. In other words, everything that God has said he was going to do, he has done. God is always trustworthy. But it's also the desire for the good God has promised in the future. God has not promised to protect the Roman Empire, even though the Roman Empire thought that it would. God never promised to protect even later on the different Germanic empires and even the the empires in regards to like Great Britain, the United Kingdom. He never promised to keep them, even though they thought their empire was the one that God would protect. Let me tell you something. I love the country we're in, but God has never promised to create an eternal kingdom in the United States. He's pointing through to that day finally when King Jesus is victorious and he rights all wrongs, he defeats all things, he stands as the one who is the victor and he is going to hand all those that are his over and back to the Father and say, my job is done. 
Now you see that in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about this idea, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, he destroys any other kingdom that's ever stood against him. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy, be destroyed is death. And when all things are subjected to him and the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection unto him, that God may be all in all. Let me tell you something. That is going to happen. Does everybody hear me? Okay, check back in with me if you checked out. That's gonna happen. You can bank on it. You can put your hope in that. For those of you that are younger here, do not put your hope in the economy. Do not put your hope in a, in a piece of paper that says you're smart from a university. I don't care. Go to college if you want to. Do not put your hope in the almighty dollar. Do not put your hope in a president or a vice president or a senate or a group of people or governors or any of those other things. Do not put your hope there. Hope in one thing. King Jesus and his victory and you will not be disappointed. Do you hear me? Hope. Now in going through 1 Thessalonians, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take, and my heart would be, all these ways in which we hope in wrong things, Paul is gonna take as this good, wonderful apostle that loves these people from, Thess from Thessalonica. I hope I do, I hope Christian does, I hope whoever teaches comes in and says, look, we want you to take your hands off of those things that you're hoping in, and we want you to place your hand firmly on Jesus and his kingdom and place all of your hope there, because I promise you, it is going to happen. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, let me just say this. Today is the day to bend the knee to King Jesus because you do not want to bend your knee to him after it's too late. You can't earn your way to King Jesus. You can't somehow be good enough to come to King Jesus. Jesus Christ came, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to save people from their sins. You can do nothing. But today, you can bend your knee by faith you can trust, you can see this loving God for who he is, and you can take all the places in which you have found your hope that you know are pointless and place them in the one in which your hope is always intended, King Jesus, and you can be transformed today. And so that's where we're going. I would say this, buckle in, because <laughs> I think it is going to be awesome, but painful. Because all of us in this room, let's admit it, we have our claws in the wrong hope. And I pray that God's word and the power of God's spirit will release our hands from the non-hopeful things and put them into truly King Jesus and his kingdom and his righteousness. And all God's people said, amen. amen.